You're listening to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Thursday, December 13th, 2012, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Hey, happy Hanukkah, guys. Happy Hanukkah. Yeah, is it, is it Hanukkah? It is. Evan, I never asked you this before, but what do you celebrate? It's known as the Festival of Lights, and Jewish people commemorate the miracle of the olive oil that took place back in uh, Jerusalem, in which there was a, basically a large conflict going on with the Jews. What else is new? And they needed eight nights worth of oil to get through their turmoil and tumult at the time, but there was only enough oil for one night. So they lit the oil and miraculously it lasted for a whole eight nights until they could press more oil, which was the whole point of getting to the eighth day. And they were able to save the temple that they were defending and rid the bad guys if you you know, if you're on the side of the Jewish people. So that's that's the miracle. You know, it's considered a celebration, a festival. It's not really a holiday. It's not Christmas, right? It's not what Christmas is to, to Christians and Catholics. Uh, this is this is more of just a commemoration. Catholics are Christians, by the way, just so we don't get emails about that. Oh, well, not if you're Jack Chick. Yeah. And but, also yeah, Christmas so, is celebrated by Are, are you saying what, what do we do here at the household? Yeah, do you do both? What do you do? Yeah, we, we uh, celebrate both. We, uh, you know, we do the secular, the secular version thing, yeah. of all of this stuff, right? And we oh, do, so it's you know, like a the, war on Hanukkah, that's what you're saying. <laughs> war on Hanukkah, exactly. Another war. I'm more of a Festivus man myself. Bob, you brought up Festivus and this. It all happens around the win- time of the winter solstice, roughly. So, whereas a lot of people, a lot of, were celebrating that fact of the seasons, you know, it all kind of, I guess, made sense to a certain degree to have these celebrations based on that. It's all based on pagan celebrations, you know, surviving the darkest day of the year. Right. Happy Saturnalia, everybody. Well, Rebecca, welcome back from Australia. I hear you had a good time. Yeah. Down, down Thank you. There. Yeah, I had a blast. You guys were definitely missed several oh, times. And we missed I was, you too. And I was asked there. where you were. You and George, everybody wanted to know where you and George were. Yeah. So I told no. them that you didn't love them and that you were <laughs> at home good. celebrating not being in Australia because you hate them. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, you know, we have jobs uh, and really kids nice. and stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, hopefully, you can go next time because love to go. See you. Just need a little, um, little lead time. Little, little lead time. We have yeah. to plan. Yeah. a long time ahead for these. Especially things, the New it. Zealanders because they didn't oh, get yeah. to see yeah. like a live show or anything last time. So we really want to go to New Zealand, but honestly, it's really the time off. I mean, yeah. carving out that much time in in our schedule is really challenging. So yeah, it was. I I had a blast. I possibly my highlight. We uh, went back to Waitomo Caves, where the glowworms are, and it was amazing. We did uh, so. We did cool. We went spelunking with inner tubes, and it was awesome. All right, when you say Uh, spelunking, like how tight was it? It wasn't that bad. Like there, there were some parts where if if you were claustrophobic, you probably would have had a really bad time. But for Mm. the most part, it was pretty easy. The reason why you carry the tubes for the most part though is because at one point it opens up and you can like float down this underground river and just like look up and see what looks like a galaxy of uh, glowworms above you. It was really amazing. Now, is it true that they drop down and they try to eat your face? Yeah, no, they are carnivorous and they do eat Mm -hmm. people. 
They're at the top of their food chain. <laughs> Uh, no, they actually don't have mouths wide enough to eat the adults. Um, so there's really no worry about that. Glowworms are, as our guide aptly pointed out, they're not worms, but glow maggots doesn't get any tourists to the area. <laughs> glow maggots. <laughs> awesome. Oh my god, awesome. that's so nasty. <laughs> so, so yeah, they're, t- they're technically, they're maggots and they, uh, glow and they There's have a larval this, stage of yeah species. rebecca yes. like when you're floating by do they look down and go you look delicious you know? <laughs> no, <laughs> rebecca in wonderland i don't think so uh <laughs> no they have each of them has like a tiny thread coming down from it and it uses that like it uses its light to attract bugs humans yeah and you just fl- and they float by on rafts <laughs> right yeah but you should never get up and touch them or they'll they'll eat you they're one of the few species, I think, that eats its parents, because uh, mm-hmm. the wow. female like lays the eggs and then uh, gets caught in the stickiness, I think, and then eventually gets devoured by the larva. Mm-hmm. Um, Mom and dad. I think those monsters that. from Half Life that drop like a tentacle and pull you up and they eat you like at the ceiling. I yeah, think those are glowworms. Yeah, actually. those are pretty much rampant glowworms. Well, Rebecca, do you have a this day in skepticism for us? I do. Yes, today being December 15th, uh, back in 1973, December 15th was the day that the American Psychiatric Association voted to remove homosexuality from the list of psychiatric disorders in the DSM. And back then it was the DSM-2. What they did was they, there were tons of protests, obviously, from gay rights organizations and grassroots activists, you know, protesting the fact that homosexuality was, by 1973, 1974, still considered a uh, disorder, a mental disorder. And so eventually APA bowed to the pressure. And there was also a lot of internal pressure from scientists who objected to that as well, particularly people like Alfred Kinsey, I think, was sort of uh, helpful in getting that removed. So, uh, yeah, in 1974, the DSM-2 had a seventh printing and homosexuality was removed and sexual orientation disturbance took its place. And sexual orientation disturbance was meant to be for people who um, were uncomfortable with their orientation and were would try to change their orientation I, I liken it to the people who are in those gay therapy programs yeah. where you try to straighten yourself out. Jeez. Of course, eventually sexual orientation disturbance was removed as well because it was pointed out that that's not actually an internal disorder so much that, as that is outside pressure from society. Right, about, cultural. Yeah, about your orientation. I, I found uh, the document, the proposal to remove homosexuality from the DSM penned by Robert Spitzer. Does that name sound familiar to you? It does. It does. I'll, t- I'll tell you what that is in a second. And here, here, let me just read you one paragraph that summarizes the debate at the time. Now, this is 1973, you know, almost 40 years ago. The proponents of the view that homosexuality is a normal variant of human sexuality argue for the elimination of any reference to homosexuality in a manual of psychiatric disorders because it is scientifically incorrect, encourages an adversary relationship between psychiatry and the homosexual community, and is misused by some people outside of our profession who wish to deny civil rights to homosexuals. 
Those who argue that homosexuality is a pathological disturbance in sexual development assert that to remove homosexuality from the nomenclature would be to give official sanction to this form of deviant sexual development would be a cowardly act of succumbing to a small but vocal group of activist homosexuals who defensively attempt to prove that they are not sick and would tend to discourage homosexuals from seeking much-needed treatment. Isn't that interesting? Now, I also, in this document, it lists a number of uncontroversial premises that they say these are things with which anyone can hardly disagree. One of them is that modern methods of treatment enable a significant proportion of homosexuals who wish to change their sexual orientation to do so. And that's not even something that was quickly dropped. I mean, as early as 2001, Spitzer... Uh, delivered a paper called Can Some Gay Men and Lesbians Change Their Sexual Orientation? Yes, so this was, is the same guy 30 years later. Yeah. Right, 2003, he published a paper, Can Some Gay Men and Lesbians Change Their Sexual Orientation? Oh, sorry. But he later retracted that, his paper. Oh. Yeah. And, and he, this is what he, he actually tried. He tried to get the journal to actually retract it completely. But what he said was, the data was there. So the data was some homosexuals, after going through a program, to change their orientation, so-called reparative therapy, that they claim to have reduced same-sex desire and and increased you know other sex desire. And he essentially argued in the 2003 paper that there was there wasn't any evidence of lying or self-deception. So he took that at face value and said they've actually changed their orientation. He then later recanted and said, well, there's really no data to say that that their self-report of altered orientation is not self-deception or lying. And so that the entire interpretation of his paper was just made up. You know, it wasn't really based on any data. It was just a subjective interpretation. So that pretty much ended scientifically and within the psychiatric profession any discussion of reparative therapy being legitimate. And now it's pretty much accepted that it doesn't work. It causes internal conflict to try to change someone's sexual orientation. It's basically a, a harmful intervention that doesn't work. Leave people alone. Yeah, leave <laughs> Goodness <them> alone. <laughs> sake. Just leave them alone. Jay, you're going to tell us about a recent debate with a young earth creationist, Paul Nelson. A blogger named Jerry Coyne, who also is a PhD and he's a professor in the Department of Ecology and Evolution at the University of Chicago, who's writing for a blog called Why Evolution is True. Jerry wrote a blog post about a young earth creationist named Paul Nelson who criticized Jerry for calling to task a biologist named Jim Shapiro. Jim is a biologist that minimizes the importance of natural selection in evolution. So Jerry commented about Jim Shapiro. Paul said, hey, you shouldn't have done that. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of people, a lot of other prominent biologists out there that agree with Jim and you're, you are wrong. So he stated many times that these biologists have frank doubts about selection. And the list of biologists happens to be pretty uh, heavy. Like the list here is uh, Eric Davidson, Michael Lynch, Andreas Wagner, John Gerhardt, and Mark Kirshner. So what Jerry decided to do is he said, you know, I know a handful of these guys, and the other the other ones I, I think I can get in touch with or get their email addresses. I think I'm going to send an email to all of them, tell them what Paul Nelson wrote, and just ask them to clarify what their stance is. And he did he did that. He did it, and it worked great. 
he actually got a response from all of them. They all said that he could use their responses as much or as little as he wanted to. So he had clearance to quote them and, and pull from their, their responses to him. And it turns out that each one of them responded and explained that Nelson's summation of their stance is wrong and that, and that, uh, he, he really didn't even have a clue about what they, what their stance was. So the, you know, you could say, well, he either is making it up, like he's lying about it, or he didn't read it, he'd never read it, or he did and he just doesn't get it to the point where he, he can't actually parse his way through what they write. He's a, Chase, a young earth creationist. I mean, motivated reasoning. That's their daily bread. Yeah, so essentially he was saying that, you know, natural selection is not important to evolution. And, you know, therefore evolution's wrong, essentially. That's where he's trying to get to. That the whole con- Darwinian construct of natural selection leading to evolutionary change is wrong. And that even biologists, modern day biologists realize that natural selection doesn't work. But he quoted, um, this is a typical creationist strategy of taking discussions internally about the relative importance of various different mechanisms within evolution and then trying to interpret that as evolution isn't true. And Coyne totally called him out on it. He was able to do that because, because Paul Nelson was, was quoting out of context living biologists who he could email and ask what your opinion is. And so it was, you know, unequivocally he showed that Nelson was taking them out of context. They are all evolution. Awesome. Yeah, they, they all believe in evolution. They all believe that natural selection is important to evolution. It's just that there are other mechanisms that are also important, and it's just a discussion, a, a healthy debate about the uh-huh. relative contribution of various different elements to, evo- to the evolutionary process. Henceforth, creationists will go back to just quoting dead people like yes. Einstein <laughs> and the Founding Fathers. Right. Yeah, Exactly. Bob, do you remember our encounter with Paul Nelson? No, <laughs> apparently not. We met him uh, at the Skeptical Conference, the CSI Skeptical Conference we went to in California about, what is that now, 10 years ago? Oh, yeah. And we, if you recall, so he was actually, they had, actually had a debate on stage. It was Paul Nelson, some other yes. design guy. Yeah, I do remember it. Oh, man. And then afterwards, was there was like a Q&A, and I went toe-to-toe with Paul Nelson yep. for, Kicked his ass. for a minute. But, Paul, but what I remember is that he was a <laughs> super nice guy. Really friendly, very, very nice genuine. guy, very genuine, but totally clueless. Just yep. had that deer in the headlights look. I, I think I asked him about the fact that with like evolutionary change, oh, with like there, there are, it was the gaps. It was a whole God of the gaps thing. And he was saying, yes, but there are still things we can't explain. And I, I made the point that, yeah, but you're taking a snapshot of what we know today, right now. If you look at, the history of evolution as a, as a scientific discipline, those gaps are ever shrinking. The things that creationists were talking about 30 years ago have been filled. Now you've just moved on to new gaps, you know, so, and he had nothing to say about that. He really just couldn't, Shocker. couldn't respond. Yeah. From Jerry Coyne's blog, he does put Paul's email that, that Paul had wrote him, written him and, Paul seemed like a very nice guy. He was actually trying to engage in legitimate conversation. But he's a young Earth creationist. That's <laughs> exactly. the bottom line. No way around it. And Rebecca, there have been other creationist news in the last couple of weeks. The next, I guess, strategy out of the Discovery Institute, the, this truth in education uh, strategy. Yeah, you know, 
there's always creationist news. There's creationist news every week. It's just that we don't cover it every single week because then it would become into, it would just turn into the creation hour with <laughs> SGU, you know? Um, because I, I was thinking about that this while I was, uh, reading about this latest effort because there were several things referenced that happened rather recently that we just never got around to mentioning because the creationists are just always pushing, particularly on this issue of trying to get creationism into schools somehow. So this news story involves Dennis Cruz, who is uh, a senator in Indiana, state senator in Indiana. And Cruz, in last the last Senate session, in the last year, uh, he submitted a bill that would have basically forced the teaching of creationism along with evolution in science classrooms. And it actually passed in one house and got knocked down in the other. And at the time, Cruz said that he would live to fight again and that he would resubmit this bill or something like it in 2013. Well, now he is saying that he's not going to reintroduce that bill after all. He's dialed it back a little bit, realizing that that bill wouldn't work. And now he's planning to introduce something called the Truth in Education Bill. According to Cruz, this would force teachers to uh, come up with alternate sources for any fact that students question. So, for instance, just to pick a subject completely at random, let's say a biology teacher is talking about evolution, a student raises her hand and says, how do you know that that's true? The teacher would then be forced to explain why evolution is true using other sources. Like most of the uh, things creationists do these days, at first blush, you have to wonder what's the big deal with that. But that's their whole point. The creationists are constantly trying to get the thin end of the wedge in any way they can. And this is what they're down to. And quite frankly, it's pathetic because, I mean, first of all, teachers already do this all the time and students already do this all the time. Students constantly ask, how do you know that's so? And teachers constantly come up with the reasons why that is so. Uh, good teachers, at least. I suppose yeah, there are how a few we know teachers. What... Yeah, I, I, how... I suppose there are a few teachers out there who are like, you know, screw off but yeah. I, I think most yeah. teachers yeah will go into intimate detail on how we know what we know because that's interesting and that's how kids learn but no this would uh put it down in the books so that a teacher legally i guess has to uh come up with uh many sources for everything they say well my interpretation is a little different okay it it's not so much about forcing teachers to defend the truth as providing cover for teachers who want to introduce creationist arguments. Because then they could say, hey, the law forces me to explore how we know what we know and to use other sources. I'm just doing following the law. Well, yeah, or I was I was getting to that. That's, okay, I'm sorry. That's the idea behind a lot of these these laws, isn't it, though? It's it's a way to uh, they, they can no longer say teachers have to teach creationism or, te or even teachers can teach creationism. Now it's teachers can say whatever they want, uh, you know, in pursuit of this. So in this case, uh, yeah, that's 
um, in pursuit of explaining to a kid everything about this topic that they could possibly want to know. Um, so, yes, for teachers who want to talk about creationism, all they need to do is get a student to ask, well, how do you know that that's true? Uh, or at least pretend that they saw that question flit across a student's face, I suppose. And then, yeah, they could offer, well, you know, there are alternative theories and here they are. And presumably, yes, they would be protected by this. But right. again, it is really pathetic. I mean, I'm hoping it won't pass and I don't think it will, but I'm kind of glad that this is what creationists are down to now because it's sad. Yeah, but I think it still is having the intended effect of making the teaching of evolution seem controversial when it isn't and creating a space, space in which science teachers who want to are able to teach creationism. From what I, from what I've read, it seems that if you're a science teacher in a state or in a community where, where belief in creationism is, is common, you can get away with it. You can do it and no one's going to challenge you on it because who's going to do it? It's all regulated at such a, lo at such a local community. So, uh, in 2008, Louisiana passed what was known as a truth in education bill. So another place where, yeah, evolution is seen as something controversial. And yeah, sure enough, for some reason, this bill is only focused on science and on yeah, right. particularly, quote unquote, Darwin's theory. You know, you'd think, though, that if you really just want to give kids the ability to have multiple sources on everything they learn, then why restrict it to science? Why not, you know, open it up to every discipline? Also, I thought it was interesting that this guy really was tried the old school equal time approach first. Like, really? Mm -hmm. Where's this guy been? It's been, yeah. There's already been a Supreme Court case that shot that down. Then apparently what happened is that the Discovery Institute got their hands on this guy. They said, no, no, you can't do it this way, dude. Here, this is try this. And they basically handed him the, the, the truth and education approach. Yeah, because they they know what they're doing. Yeah. They're, they're slick. And they they know that this bill passed before. So, yeah, here they are doing it again. That's what they do. So we still have to be vigilant and keep an eye on this these shenanigans. Uh, Bob, you're going to tell us, not this is not about evolution, but about the dawn of life itself. Scientists are taking a different approach to this question. Yeah, Steve, this is pretty cool. Two Arizona State University scientists have, uh, have a completely new take on the best way to discover how life originated. You know, instead of looking at the chemicals and pathways that, you know, that ordinary matter used to transition into biology. They're looking now at the, at the information flow itself instead. Kind of, kind of like looking at the software of a computer instead of just the hardware. The, the two researchers are Professor Paul Davies, who's the director of the Beyond Repair Center for Fundamental Concepts in Science, and Sarah Walker, a NASA postdoctoral fellow at the Beyond Center. They recently published their theory in the December 12th issue of the journal Interface. Uh, they gave their article a cool title. It's called The Algorithmic Origins of Life. Now, how life began, you know, it has to be one of the most fundamental and important questions that we can ask, isn't it? I mean, imagine, imagine if we just, if we knew how life began on Earth or in space, if that if that's where life on Earth began, uh, talk about a Nobel Prize. That would be pretty amazing. Kind of uh, on par with finding evidence of life on Mars, or maybe even inventing a zero calorie chocolate peanut butter substitute. But I don't, <laughs> now I don't, you're I don't going know about crazy. that one. Yeah, it's a little silly. 
like I'm saying, this is a very, obviously, quite a difficult problem. You know, there's no fossilized remains of how life came about, and that's it's just not going to happen. They're not going to find it one day. Those things yeah. are just not going to fossilize. Most of what they've been doing so far is just finding plausible chemical pathways. Right, right. Mm-hmm. But nothing it, that's really, really making big news or that's really getting everyone excited. Well, I mean, they've been a, trying seems, for over a century. It seems like really the focus recently has been on RNA. It's like the first real life molecule being something akin to a primitive RNA molecule. They're saying we still haven't defined exactly. Yeah, where it's become. I mean, we, you know, amino acids or you know is not is by definition not life. Well, you say, saying what, what's the dividing line between life and non-life? Isn't that kind of what we're looking for? Like that point in which we can, you know. I don't. Well, I don't think there is one point. I think you know, there's a lot of different components that make up life, and it. It's a, it's a continuum. What's the difference between chemistry, complicated chemistry, and biochemistry? You know, living organisms. Well, that's it's, that's just it, and that's one of the problems that the researchers point out. The problems with conventional thinking is that they don't really distinguish between chemistry and biology. And and Evan, you brought up uh, you brought up amino acids. That makes that reminds me of that that famous Miller Urey experiment. Remember it. In the 50s, I'm sure a lot of people have heard about this. They basically put together a stew of various chemicals to try to recreate the, you know, that primordial Campbell soup that was the Earth's oceans billions of years ago. And then they, um, then they hit it with an electrical electrical charge to uh, to simulate lightning, I guess. And they found that, style. yeah, and they found that simple amino acids were created, which you know that's pretty pretty key structures for life on Earth, right? And that was really cool and all, but since then, I mean, we really haven't progressed much much farther than that in terms of, uh, you know, figuring out how those amino acids achieved anything close to the complexity of life. Uh, Sarah Walker said recently, chemical-based approaches have stalled at a very early stage of chemical complexity, very far from anything we could consider alive. They suffer from conceptual shortcomings in that they fail to distinguish between chemistry and biology, just like I said. Now, their new approach is just that. It's an approach. It's really just the bare beginnings of an idea of an hypothesis uh, that they try to look at the problem from a completely different angle. Uh, Professor Davies had an interesting quote on this. He said, this is a manifesto. It's a call to arms and a way to say that we've got to reorient and redefine the subject and look at it in a different way. Now, the the crux of their idea is that they believe that the information is the key to a potentially powerful new way to look at the origin of life. And this is because one of the hallmarks of life, and I never really looked at it this way, one of the hallmarks is that it can... um, it can manage, life can manage and manipulate the information moving through itself. And not only that, the researchers contend that inanimate objects also do not have this flow going in two directions. And they, the example they give for this is like when you put your hand on a hot stove, because of the extreme heat, the information is communicated to your brain that, hey, get the hell away from that. And then that information goes back down and the brain moves your hand away, even, even without voluntary control. Davies had another quote. He said, to a physicist or chemist, life seems like magic matter. It behaves in extraordinary ways that are unmatched in any other complex physical or chemical system. Such lifelike properties include autonomy, adaptability, and goal-oriented behavior. The ability to harness chemical reactions to enact a pre-programmed agenda rather than being a slave to those reactions, which, which is one of the, one of the big differences between uh, biology and inanimate matter. They, they compared it to just putting a cookie on that stove. The, the cookie is not going to react. 
It would get it's delicious. Just, yeah, just delicious, sir. <laughs> Very warm but, uh, and smelly. But it's not gonna, it's not gonna do much. But sit there. It's not gonna crawl uh, away from a hot poker. In other words, <laughs> well, you've no. never seen my mom's uh, cookies. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's not true. I mean, my mother's also, a saint and makes amazing. That's cookies. right. I, gotta put that I, I believe it. I believe it. Now, their article, uh, as, as the name of their article implies, uh, they have, they even have a mathematical model that they use, and I, or I suspect that they hope to one day use to see this transition from regular matter to biological living matter. And the cool thing, though, is that you could also use this approach um, for other miles, milestones in, in, in other sciences or in the evolution of life. For example, it could potentially help us learn more about the transition from single cells to multicellularity. And that was a very big day for life. I mean, that was a huge milestone that if it, if it could give us some insight into that, that'd be great. And here's another cool angle that I, that I didn't consider. I could also help us find aliens. Uh, Chris McKay, who's an astrobiologist at the NASA Ames Research Center, uh, and he wasn't involved in the research, he said that their approach potentially lays down a framework that allows us to consider other classes of organic molecules that could be the basis for life. Do any of you guys know what rennet is, R-E-N-N-E-T? Isn't that the gross stuff that's left over after you kill something and eat it? <laughs> it's some kind of meat, isn't it? You're close, but isn't that online form that on the internet there was Reddit? crazy people? No, no, no Reddit, Reddit, Reddit. <laughs> don't tell me, don't tell me it's head cheese or something. No, it's uh, it's involved in cheese making. I'll tell you about it in a second. Oh, right. <laughs> so uh, this is a news item about possibly discovering the oldest evidence of cheesemaking, which dates back to 7,500 years ago. Archaeologists have found perforated pottery vessels, uh, so it looks like some kind of strainer. But what was it straining? You know, there were multiple Pasta? possibilities. Could have been Pasta. Could have been for straining honey, uh, for example. But what researchers who published recently in the scientific journal Nature have found is... Uh, Milk proteins on the pottery, which they say is unambiguous evidence that these perforated pots were used for cheese making, which pushes back the evidence for the old, you know, the oldest evidence for cheese making in history. The first written record of cheese, reference to cheese, is about 5,000 years old. So this obviously is two and a half thousand years older than that. Cheese is one of those things, you know, it's obviously been around for a long time. And it's it's a little complicated in terms of making cheese. So you wonder how people hit upon this idea. I always, th- you know, think about it like baking bread or brewing it's beer. Probably an accident. It's a or yeah, it's eating a, it's, a lobster. It's a multi-step process, and you wonder how they came up came by fermentation. Yeah. So um, I was doing some background reading. You know, I've, I I'm fascinated by topics like this. Like, well, how do you make cheese? I had some kind of vague notion, but I wanted to get a little bit more of a detailed understanding. So it seems that there are, are a couple of critical processes in making cheese. Uh, and you could make cheese at home very easily. Uh, a lot of people do that. It made me curious about how hard it would be. So first, of course, you start with milk. You can either start with fresh milk that's not pasteurized, uh, or you can pasteurize it. You can heat the milk to kill the bacteria. But then you have to introduce lactic acid-producing bacteria into the milk to acidify it a little bit. Um, you could do that by adding yogurt to the milk, because yogurt can have an active culture of the right kind of bacteria. Or now, you know, commercially, you could just buy the bacteria to add to the milk. Crucially, you can also just buy cheese, just in case anybody wants to skip all these steps. You could. <laughs> then... Not as much fun. Once you, once you have the active bacterial culture, 
Um, then the next step is to add the rennet, R-E-N-N-E-T. And rennet is a- an enzyme. It's funny because the only reason I knew it was some kind of animal byproduct was because I've seen like cheeses that claim to not use rennet as... That's correct. So re- it is chymosin. It is an enzyme derived from the stomach of a calf or a kid, a baby goat. Uh, oh, before yeah. they eat anything other than milk, adults, adult cows and goats do not make this enzyme, chymosin. Um, so initially, that was the only source of it. You know, throughout history, historians speculate that it's possible that the process of making cheese was accidentally discovered when milk was stored in the stomach of a goat or or a calf. You know, they were essentially using it as a skin to store to store milk, but then. The chymosin was there and they had cheese. So, uh, but then it probably took hundreds of years, maybe even a couple of thousand years to refine the process to know exactly how much rennet to add when, at what temperature. And then what, so the, what the chymosin does is it, it converts the milk protein from a soluble to an insoluble form. So then you get the, the curd. It curdles the milk. So you get the solid curd. And the liquid whey, which then you use the strainer, like the strainer that they discovered, to separate the curd from the whey. Pre- previously, cheesemakers would just discard the whey, or maybe they would feed it to animals. But but now it's used a lot as a source of milk protein um, in the manufacture of food products. So cheesemakers will sell their way off to food production factories. And then the curd is compacted in a cheese press, you know, into the solid form of the cheese. They may also put wax around it so that you can age it without it going bad. Now, there were a few significant advantages to making cheese out of milk. One is that cheese is delicious. <laughs> That's it's one of my favorite foods. The uh, second one is that it has lot, a lot less lactose than regular milk. Thousands of years ago, everyone was pretty much lactate, lactose intolerant. Well, uh, it, yeah, every, so. Yeah, we only evolved that pretty recently. We knew that. Yeah, we, we evolved yeah. not being lactose intolerant after having, a, you know, dairy for hundreds, thousands of years. And not and every it, culture evolved that ability because they weren't yeah. eating or drinking dairy. There wasn't so. enough selective pressure. Yeah. But it, but cheese had less lactose, so you could tolerate it, you know, so that was maybe a stepping stone to more hardcore dairy products. And two, or and I think I'm on to three, is, that it, it can store for a long time. So milk obviously goes bad uh, after a few days. Right. But you can, if you make a wheel of cheese, it'll last for weeks or months. And if you figure out to cover it in wax, it could last for years, potentially. So the, uh, so cheese is a good way to store the, you know, milk as a foodstuff. So it was, there's a huge advantage for an agricultural, you know, community. To, to figure out how to do this. And then, of course, over, over the, the centuries, different cultures learned how to make, how to manipulate all those variables, but when, what culture to add, when, what bacterial culture, how long, at what temperature, how much rennet, et cetera, in order to make different kinds of cheeses. Um, and they, and they developed their specific, you know, recipe, and some of them guard that recipe, you know, very carefully. So, Rebecca, back to your, your rennet, uh, discussion. So, if you, Traditionally made cheese from uh, rennet isolated from the stomach of a calf. Essentially, you have to kill a, a baby cow in order to get the rennet. So, if you're you know a vegetarian who doesn't want to eat baby cows, then you'll 
you know, you wouldn't want to eat cheese made with rennet that was harvested from a sacrificed calf. But so there are vegetable sources of rennet also. Um, doesn't last, doesn't store as long. The rennet doesn't store as long, but it, it's the same enzyme, chymosin. So it has the same effect. Apparently you can make it from figs and there are some other plants you can make it from thistle. It was mentioned. But and there's a third kind of rennet and that comes from bacteria that are genetically engineered to crank out chymosin. Yeah. So that it produces an interesting dilemma for certain food purists. Um, if you want to eat cheese, do you want to eat GMO cheese made with GMO rennet or cheese made from rennet purified from the stomach of a slaughtered baby calf? GMO. Easy call. Done. GMO. I think it's an easy call. GMO. Absolutely. Like those bacteria. And that, that essentially, that technology, you know, making uh, bacteria and I think also mold that um, will crank out the rennet, the chymosin, is, is, is um, rendering obsolete the technology of purifying it from the stomach of a calf or a kid. Doesn't it sound ridiculous, though? Like it's 2012 and we're aging things in the stomach of a calf? <laughs> <laughs> like, did we cut that calf open to determine the fate of our king? And <laughs> like, it sounds ridiculous. Now, GMO bacteria is definitely the way to go. But I should point out that, I mean, calves aren't slaughtered just for their rennet. These are calves that are killed for veal, and they're just making use of every part of the animal. You know, go online, of course, and there's, there's a whole subculture of homemaking, homemade cheese making. Making cheese at home. Cheese making. Yep. Well, you know what they say. Blessed are the cheesemakers. <laughs> Blessed are the cheesemakers. Absolutely. I think there's an anti-cheese crowd, like an anti-milk crowd. Well, there are vegans, sort of... yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, there's that. But right. some pretty hardcore people out there against that milk. And uh, I guess there might be some against cheese. Who knows? Yeah, the vegans. <laughs> They're just <laughs> against cheese. <laughs> if you're hardcore against milk, you're hardcore against cheese. They kind of go hand in hand. Right. I want a quickie with Bob. What? I haven't had one of those in a while. Oh, yeah. Thank you, Rebecca. I was well, you know, I just you randomly tonight. decided to bring that up. <laughs> you were gone for a couple of weeks in Australia, yeah. and you figured. Yeah. You know what they Absence makes the fawn grow harder. Ooh. What? Oh, well, this, what this is your quickie with Bob. Today, okay. uh, today, I'm going to talk about ocean robots. Well, they're not really swimming terminators, more like robotic sensors. But we're not talking about a few, though. There are now more than 3,500 robotic sensors deployed into the world's oceans right now. Each one cycling vertically every 10 days from 2 kilometers down back up to the surface, taking temperature and salinity readings and reporting their findings in real time to researchers. Isn't that cool? These robotic sensors collectively called the Argo Array, which reminds me of a Next Generation episode, reached a milestone recently after having created its one millionth ocean observation. Now, to put that into context, in the past century, humans on oceanographic ships have only done about 200,000 similar observations. Uh, And the next one million robotic readings should be complete in only about eight years, considering we have uh, well over 3,000 of those buggers. Now, this data is invaluable to researchers, It's helped us show the critical influence that the ocean has on our global climate and marine ecosystems. Since the program started, Argo Data has been featured in almost 1,200 scientific papers. I believe that was started in 1999. Uh, Now, this makes me anticipate even more a future wherein robotic sensors are orders of magnitude smaller, 
cheaper and more capable. Imagine each one as intelligent as a supercomputer today. Imagine billions of these sensors in our oceans and atmosphere and even our bodies. The, the, the tidal wave, the virtual tidal wave of new scientific data will keep us occupied for generations. I'm so excited now. This has been your Quickie with Bob. I hope it was good for you, too. All right. Well, thanks, Bob. It was good. Evan, you're going to tell us about a vampire warning. Right. Yes. Important stuff. Not this evolution and teaching in schools and <laughs> robots under the water and all that there are stuff. Vampires are, on the loose. We are on to the real, real Our important Our very lives are at stake. Now, have any of you ever heard of Sava Savanovic? Yes, I have. No, you haven't, because you're not yes, from I Serbia, have. and only people from <laughs> Serbia know who this is. Okay, Rebecca, who is Sava exactly Savanovic? Uh, he is a vampire that was terrorizing a small Serbian village who was locked up in a windmill, and recently the windmill burned down or something, <laughs> and so Wasn't that now Frankenstein? he doesn't have a home. That's pretty, yeah, that's pretty now he has no home, and he's stalking the village Apparently. Pretty close. Because he has no home. Yeah. Now, Evan, right? Evan Sava yes. Savanovic, is that the Serbian equivalent of Flavo Flav? Yeah, th- I, that's, I was thinking that as well. Um, and I'm sure there are other couple of... He <laughs> does wear instances. a giant clock around his neck. Yes, no, you know what time it is. Uh, it's very important for vampires to know that. Sava Savanovic, yep. You're right, Rebecca, one of the most famous vampires in Serbian folklore. Not the only one. And he was said to live in an old water mill on this river in the Zaraje village, which, you know, is somewhere deep in Serbia. A little, little town, about a thousand, population of about a thousand people. And it was said, or legend has it, that he would lure people into his water mill and kill them and drink their blood and, you know, take their grain because it was a grain mill and, you know, well, I guess a vampire has to have grain, too. Mm. And you were right. The watermill, it didn't burn down, but it just collapsed under its own dilapidation and lack of care for it. It was in operation until the late 1950s. But after it closed down, uh, it became a bit of a tourist site for the village, but it went into disrepair and it collapsed just earlier this year. Now it's causing the local residents to believe that the vampire is homeless and looking for a new home. So get this, the municipal authorities of the town have issued a public health warning advising people to rub garlic on their doors and windows, and the mayor of the town reminded people, in addition, to keep holy crosses in every room of their house. Makes sense. To keep yeah. Sava away. There's, a, there's nothing scarier than a homeless vampire. Two homeless nothing. vampires? Hmm? Okay, yeah, fair <laughs> enough. Double your yeah. pleasure. Now, okay, so... Local municipal council member Myodrag Vucic had this to say. Five people have recently died, one after another in our small community, one of them hanging himself. And this is not by accident. It's out of fear of the legend of this vampire. So people are taking it somewhat seriously. Uh, Oh, hanging yourself is pretty serious. (laughs) That's about as serious as you can possibly take a vampire warning. And there are others who are saying this is a publicity stunt to, to bring in foreign dollars for tourists, and they're taking advantage of the fact that the mill collapsed in order to do that. So, so it's an interesting little combination. Yeah. But I think I think people really do have a, if if not it, 
outward direct fear of it somewhere in the back of their minds in that village they're saying yeah you know let's just be safe why not let's just be safe and then there are others who are saying that it's only a custom that they've inherited people are religious around here everybody has a wooden cross and garlic is grown in almost every uh part of the village you know in their in their mm-hmm. gardens and so forth so the fact that people have happen to have a lot of garlic you know is Maybe it was a conspiracy on the part of the garlic industry. Big garlic. Big garlic. <laughs> big garlic and big cross. Nice. Big, big cross. <laughs> um, yeah. I bet sales have skyrocketed. They they have. Tourists, actually, it has brought in the tourists, as they predicted it, it would. Yeah. It's kind of like restaurants say, oh, yeah, our restaurant's haunted. You know, or the town that says they had the crashed saucer there. It's a, it's a, it's a tourist attraction. Well, Evan. Doctor. We do have time for Who's That Noisy this week. All right. Then let's do that. Let's play for you last week's Who's That Noisy. So tell me who this is. In science, there's a principle called Occam's Razor, which means that the simplest explanation for any physical phenomenon is most likely the true one. Some guy talking about (laughs) Occam's Razor. I don't know what he is, but I like him. Uh, be careful what you say, Rebecca. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> he sounds like a good guy to me. I'm At least on board with anything time. else he's ever said. <laughs> yeah, right. Everything else he says is total crap. No. Uh, Dr. Charles Krauthammer, American Pulitzer Prize winning syndicated columnist. He's a political commentator and a physician. Uh, of all things. He does have right-of-center leanings in many of his political opinions, but that's not why we uh, chose him for for this week, is because he does have a good, solid appreciation of science and the scientific method. He is an intelligent design critic. He is an advocate for the scientific consensus on evolution and also about global warming. He uh, acknowledges that it is uh, a human-made phenomenon. He is a supporter of embryonic stem cell research. It's sad that it's notable that you have a that there's a conservative commentator who is on board with the scientific consensus. You know, it has to be pointed out, even though he's on the right. He I know. Still, still believes in evolution and global warming. I know. Yeah. Trinock from the message boards guessed correctly first. We haven't heard his name in a while, so he was about due for a victory. Well done. Good old Trinock. <laughs> All right, what do you got for this week, Evan? This week we have a puzzle. Oh, a logic excellent. puzzle. Because we had a lot of good responses from the last logic puzzle we ran a couple weeks ago, so I figured we'd bring one back. And I think we're also going to get a lot of correct answers on this. It'll be fun to uh, see how people work their way through this. Is everyone ready? Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. There are three boxes. One is labeled carrots. Another is labeled celery. And the last box is labeled carrots and celery. You know that each box is labeled incorrectly. You may ask me to pick out one vegetable from one box, whichever you choose. By doing that, how can you label all three boxes correctly? Who labeled those boxes? <laughs> why Why is that how you even sort your produce? It's ridiculous. Big celery and big carrot are behind this, apparently. Mm. <laughs> they are sponsoring this week's puzzle. All right, so it's pretty straightforward. It is a bit of a noggin scratcher. You're going to have to think about this and figure out how you're able to... Just one. One item from one box. That's it. Pick one item from one of the boxes, and you can get them all. 
write to us and tell us and let us know your thoughts on this or post it on our message boards and our forums sguforums.com and our email is info at the skepticsguide.org thanks evan well Evan, Jay, and I previously recorded a conversation with our friend Joshi Berger. So let's listen to that conversation now. Well, we're being joined now by Joshi Berger. Joshi, welcome back to the SGU. I am so honored to be part of the extended SGU family. Thank you, guys. We wanted to touch base with you one last time before the world ends in a week or yeah. two. Oh, you know what? These Mayan sons of bitches. We're finally getting somewhere. Randy keeps getting stronger every year. I don't know what the hell that wizard is doing. Every year at time, he seems to be getting stronger. Finally, thing is about to croak, that Sylvia Brown thing. It seems like she's almost hitting her end. And right now, the world has to end. Why? Good times are coming, and they're ending for us. <laughs> good times were not meant to last. Josh, come on. It was a good run, man. But it's, it's, everything has to end. Yeah, we had four and a half billion years. That was good. Yeah, yeah, but you know what? PlayStation 4 is about to come out. Uh, Grand Theft oh. Auto 5 is about to come out. Hey, Call but we'll get, 18 or something, we'll get right? to see The Hobbit before the world ends. So. I don't Ooh. even know what that is. But, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm not a geek like you guys. Well, I've composed a short list of things that I want to educate you guys on, and we're going to do um, a list instead of uh, science and fiction, we're going to do Jewy or fiction. And I am going to read to you guys four things, and you guys have to decide, are these real things that religious Orthodox Jews believe, or is one of them fiction, which one of them is? Did I explain that well, Steve? I think you yeah, did a better job. you got it. Yeah. Th anyways. Three of these are things that, that uh, Orthodox Jews really believe, and one is wrong. You made it up, I'm assuming. All right. The first one. Now. The Bible prohibits work or labor on the Sabbath, as you all know, it's a day of rest. So religious Jews define work very broadly, and a lot of things you're not allowed to do. One of the things you're not allowed to do is to separate the bad for the good, which means that you can't filter water, you can't even pick out a shirt if it's the wrong one. You have to pick the right one out when you want to wear something on the Sabbath. This also means you can't pick out bones from fish. You have to pick out the fish from the bones. It causes a lot of problems. This ultimately led to Jews creating what we now know as gefilte fish. A fish without bones in it. Oh, okay. Yeah, number one. Oh. Number two is... Additionally, one of the things prohibited on the Sabbath is carrying anything outdoors, meaning you can't walk out of your house with anything, anything in your pocket, keys. You can't push a baby in a stroller. To circumvent this, Jews, when they live in an area of concentration of large Jews, put a string around their neighborhoods, so now they trick God into thinking it's one big area and it's no outdoors or indoors, and now they can push strollers across the street to go for meals and they can carry stuff in their pockets. Oh, my God. <laughs> Hey, do not laugh at my people. Next. <laughs> the Bible, every once in a while, gets something right, and it wants to say that you should be nice to animals. Thus, there is the enforcement, the prohibition of telling farmers that they are not allowed to muzzle their ox while they thresh their field. Threshing, if you don't know, and I didn't know until I was in yeshiva, is separating the wheat from the inedible parts. So the animal steps on it and it gets separated. And it's cruel to allow your animal to be muzzled so he looks at the food and he can't eat while he's working. The Talmud, though, tries to find a loophole in this to figure out how Jews can muzzle their animals while they're threshing the field so they can save some money. So what they do is is they devise contracts between farmers where the farmers exchange fields while they're plowing and for no other time. So technically, the Bible says you are not allowed to muzzle your ox 
but you're muzzling someone else's ox if during this period of time it's not really your ox. And therefore, they can get away with it. They save some money and you guys have to pay us rent and we win. I love now, it. It's like a negotiation, you know, like how can they outsmart dude, the Bible? <laughs> that's why we never lose at Monopoly. I was born with this game. Next. <laughs> The Bible prohibits shaving one's face. You wonder oftentimes why Hasidic Jews have beards. The Bible says that you're not allowed to shave certain points of your face. But the non-extreme religious Jews say that cutting or trimming is allowed. It just says shaving. So back in the day, you used to shave, uh, cut with scissors and stuff. But now, with the advent of the electric sha- um, shaver, which has a two-blade cutting system, which is like two little blades inside, Orthodox Jews can now shave because technically they consider it, because it's two blades, to be like little mini scissors inside. And it's not really shaving, although it shaves you because it's like little scissors cutting it up against your face and that's why you'll go to court you'll see your lawyers and you go to your dentist and dr greenberg whatever will be shaven because <laughs> they use electric shavers but they still can't use blades that there you go awesome. that's i awesome. know there you go we're gonna start with steve um i proudly know none of this yes <laughs> yeah uh, it seems like all ways of yeah getting out of a contract by by following the the uh, the details and not the spirit, you know. Right. So they're all equivalent in in that way. Now I definitely have heard about the not shaving thing, uh, and also there's something about not cutting or trimming the hair at the temples, and that's why they have the long hair. Correct. Like, both Bayes. sides hanging down. Yeah. Um. So I, I know that that kind of restriction occurs, or some people getting out of it by saying that electric shavers are tiny scissors. That that certainly is plausible. The thou shalt not muzzle your ox one. Wow, that really is subverting the purpose of of a restriction by focusing on a tiny word. That that that's, that's I think the most egregious example of subverting God's will, if you will, of these four. The string one is the funniest one, you know. But that that's I, I I'm going to employ that logic was that's so out there that you probably wouldn't have made it up, and so that's that one's probably probably real. And the, the, I like the gefilte fish one. That one just seems right to me for some reason just the separating the good from the bad all all has, makes a certain biblical kind of logic um <laughs> which means so you're all. going with so i think i'm going to say that the ox one is the fiction just because it's the most egregious wow very nice interesting um we're gonna we're gonna leave evan for last because he has little heads up on you guys genetically uh, go ahead jay let's hear you yeah so the the first one about uh not being able to separate the good from the bad. Like I, after we you do the reveal, Josh, I'll be curious to hear why that's bad. Like if this one's true, why would that be bad? Like you, you can't even pick what T-shirt you wear. How ridiculous! Like you know, we, every every single thing we do is a decision. Yeah, on some level. So See, the, that, the problem you're doing though is you're using logic for something that is really illogical. You're right. Okay, so this one, I'm not so sure about that one just because of, of how big of a problem it would be. Um, but we'll get back to it. Now, the second one about the string, I love this. Uh, I mean, I absolutely, you know, I lo- always like to, to personify things where I'm like, some, at one point in time, some, some guy, some rabbi was sitting there and he's like, what is this? We can't do any of these things. We can't get outside. We get the string, get the string. You know, like, I love that. And, and I have to believe that's true because I will be thoroughly disappointed if some, some 
awesome rabbi didn't like this be like we're gonna we're gonna wrap our neighborhood with a string. I love it. So that not one, not to mention that you can cause so much chaos in a Jewish community with the mere implementation of a scissors. Right. I love it. <laughs> now the third one about the the ox, like okay, me and my neighbor farmer friend both have oxes. I am going to Oxen. I'm gonna pull a fast one on God. And I am I am going to use my neighbor's animals, not mine. Wow! Like as if, as if, you you know, you die and you go to heaven, and God's like, really, really. Like, <laughs> like, is that, but isn't that true of all of these ones? Is, is it God gonna go really a string? <laughs> yeah. I mean, come on. Uh. And then this last one with this the the microscopic scissors. These are not razors. These are scissors. You know, like, that's epic. It's but like only, Austin Powers. Yeah. The, I, I'm going to go with the separation one, the first one with the Gefilte fish, because I just, it's not as entertaining as the others. And I, I don't know. I just think that one's the fake. All righty. Evan, let's have some Jewy opinion here. I've, uh, I, I, my DNA is not helping me here, I must admit. <laughs> so I, I, it's, a, you know, it's not a bad thing. And, uh, here's what I did. I took these in the order of most ridiculous, basically, and I'm taking the least ridiculous one, and I'm gonna call that one the fiction, the gefilte fish one. I think, in regards to this one, they may have, they may have once adhered to this, but they ate, you know, you eat fish so much, and after a few years, they're saying, wow, this is a big old pain in the ass, and I'm tired of eating these damn fish bones and stuff. Let's change this. Let's fix this and get this corrected. So I think that that one, gefilte fish, is going to turn out to be the fiction in this game. All righty now. So we got Steve thinking that uh, the fiction one is the ox one, and we got uh, the other two clowns thinking that it's the gefilte fish one. So let's take the last <laughs> one, the shaving one. Uh, first, the shaving one actually is Jewy, and um, you guys all pretty much uh, sidestepped it. And it is true that uh, actually one of the most difficult transitions for me when I became secular was learning how to use a blade. It was difficult because I was nervous actually putting up a blade to my face because I always uh, clean shaved in yeshiva. I was one of the modern students, and to use a blade, first of all, it was amazing that I went from. 20 minutes of shaving my face to 30 seconds of shaving my face. I couldn't believe it. You just go down, 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 and, and you're done. It was amazing. But that is actually, um, a, a religious thing that they don't consider, um, two blades because it's a two blade system to be technically shaven because the Bible says that you cannot shave your face and it's not a shaver. We will next take, um, the string one. Um, I'm actually surprised, but it's not surprising you guys are geeks and you guys don't watch too much TV, but this is, I was nervous to give this one because it's been covered in the media. Um, John Stewart spoke about it. It's called an Erev and it is a string and it's in every Jewish community. In fact, the community I grew up in in Barpak was one of the last remaining communities to adopt an Erev, a string, because some rabbi said there's too many people living in there and the string, the prohibition is really for carrying in a public area. So the string technically tries to create one large common indoor sort of area but if there's too many people living in an, in, a, in an enclosed area like Manhattan or something you can't have an enclosed area because you know you're not fooling God hey, there's too many people that can't be indoors that must be outdoors but that is actually true people I remember when I grew up and there was no air of there was no string in my area and people couldn't carry keys in their pockets so they couldn't come home unless they had a, a Shabbos lock was a combination lock so you can get in without a key what we would do is in the Judaica store they would 
sell Shabbos belts, which was a belt special for Sabbath, which you gave them a key from your house, and they would make a copy of it and actually make that part of the belt that goes into the loops of your pants that holds your uh, the belt up part of your key so you actually took your belt off when you got home and you used your key to get into your house you used your belt to get in so yeah this is the string is in all communities which leads us to the two remaining ones we got the gefilte fish one and we got the ox one and let's take the gefilte fish one this one is Jewy. Oh, this one so is true. This one is true. The biblical prohibition um, for doing work on the Sabbath is listed many times in the Bible. But one of the times it's listed, I believe in Leviticus, it says do not do any work on the Sabbath. And in the following paragraph, it gives the instructions on work that should be done on the, on the tabernacle, which was the resting place of God between the time when the Jews left. Look at this. You guys should pay me. You're getting a bunch of freaking biblical uh, um, lessons here. Absolutely. Between between the time when the Jews left Egypt and when they came to Israel, they, they created a tabernacle, which is some sort of resting place for God, and there were specific instructions how to create it. And the sages taught us, we learned in Yeshiva, that because they placed these two paragraphs next to each other, that all work that was necessary to be done at the tabernacle is forbidden to be done on the Sabbath. That's why God put them next to each other, meaning they devised 39 laws that cannot be done on the Sabbath. And one of them was separating. Separating. Separating because they either had to pick out, you know, impurities from the wool and linen or stones. They had to pick out the bad ones from the good ones. So any picking out of bad things from good things are not allowed. So people really take this to extremes. And like when I was in yeshiva, my family really didn't give a shit about these things. But like I would open up my dresser and I would start to push away the shirts I did not want to wear, like the colored shirts on the Sabbath, to pick out the white ones. And people like, what are you doing? You crazy? I'm like, what? They're like... You can't push away the bad ones. You got to just pick out the good ones. You can't do that. People take this really seriously. But the bones ones, like almost everyone takes seriously. You cannot have a plate of fish and pull the bones out and just leave the fish. What they'll either do is pull out the fish and leave the bones there. Or what most people do is just take a chunk of it and just try to eat it and just leave it on their tongue and pull out the bones. Which... Obviously, with little kids and stuff like that, led to a lot of people dying and stuff. And the Ashkenazi Jews in Europe created gefilte fish as a dish that didn't contain any bones they prepared before the Sabbath for Jews to eat. And finally, we get to the fiction. While the Bible does every once in a while get it right and try to restrict cruelty to animals, and it does say that a farmer is not allowed to muzzle his ox while threshing the field, the uh, sages in the Talmud do not offer up an opinion on whether it is appropriate or not, or whether you're allowed to make that exchange. The the um, options that they put forth is even more ridiculous than the ones presented here. For example, they entertain the thought of, can you have a lion present on your field which will scare the shit out of your animal so it'll be too nervous to eat and it'll thresh like a crazy animal while it's doing it or do you have to shoo the lion away to allow the ox to eat and thus um, not violate the biblical prohibition. That's one of the ones to entertain. Well, I'm counting this towards my science or fiction record for the year. Yes, I will allow uh, you to. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but, Josh, this is a great idea. I mean, just these these items that you picked, 
if you didn't have previous knowledge, they're all as equally insane. Yeah, they're all equally insane. And you know what? Mm. To me, it's shocking that this is shocking to anyone. I'm like, I guess even though I'm 12 years removed from this um, idiocy, I'm still at a point where I'm like, really, this is shocking to you guys. But I'm trying to see it from your side and see how ridiculous putting a string up and fooling God into thinking, oh, yeah, no, 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 God, this is this is one big area. Yo, chill out. Let us carry over here. To me, the mere <laughs> fact that that this survives in the year 2012 Oh, am I supposed to say 2012? I don't give a damn. But I don't care. Yeah, you know, I know you guys had a, a year Nazi on at some point. But to me, it's ridiculous that this is this still goes on, and it goes on today in contemporary society, not in Bangladesh. It goes on in New York City. Anyways, it was great knowing you guys for the past few years. It really sucks because Nexus was going to be awesome. And Tam, especially with Tam Poker, second time around, was going to be awesome. You know what? Damn you Mayans. You couldn't predict your own freaking demise, but you got this one right. Screw you guys. (laughs) All right, Joshy. Take care. Thanks, Joshy. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake. And I challenge my panel of expert skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. Got a straight up three news items this week, no theme. Is everybody ready? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Yep. All right, here we go. Item number one, a new study finds that reducing dietary fat from a high-fat diet can cause withdrawal symptoms of anxiety and food craving. Item number two, researchers examining generic pharmaceuticals find that they frequently have significant chemical differences from their brand name version. And item number three, a new fossil analysis suggests that large multicellular creatures may have appeared on land prior to evolving in the sea. Rebecca, go first. Reducing dietary fat can cause withdrawal symptoms of anxiety and food craving. That makes sense to me, seeing as I'm literally eating a pint of ice cream as I speak. All right. What flavor is it, Rebecca? It is ginger snap flavor. There's a ginger sure. snap flavor ice cream? It's delicious. Yeah. So, yeah, I've, I've heard uh, before research indicating that food addiction can be a real thing psych- psychologically. And it can have physical effects. So, yeah, I can believe that. Generic pharmaceuticals frequently have significant chemical differences from their brand name version. That is crazy talk. I'm not really sure how that can be because aren't those things tested? Make sure that they do the same thing. So that that's very suspect to me. A new fossil analysis suggests large multicellular creatures may have appeared on land prior to evolving in the sea. I don't know what that means because really large multicellular creature, I mean, you could be talking about, uh, the dolphin. Okay. Which was on the land before it went into the sea. So Steve, can you clear that up? That there were large multicellular creatures on land before there were large multicellular creatures in the sea. Before there were any multicellular creatures in the sea? Correct. All right. Okay, I can I can believe that. So that brings us back to the generic pharmaceuticals. 
frequently and significant are the words that I'm having <laughs> trouble with there. So I'm going to go ahead and say that that one is the fiction because of those words. Alrighty, Jay. Yes. So this one about the dietary fat is absolutely true in my opinion. I think when you when you remove something like that from your diet, especially if you eat a lot of it, that you would crave it. The second one about the generic pharmaceuticals being um, significantly different from the brand name version. I think this one's the fake. They, I think they have to be like similar in a lot of ways, or if not identical, just not made by the, the original manufacturer. I mean, maybe there's very, very minor differences. Maybe like the fillers are different and stuff like that. But I would tend to think that they're almost identical, if not identical, to uh, the original manufacturer brand name. And of course, the last one, because of that, I think that one's true as well. So two is the fake. Okay, Bob. Oh, man. Um, the, the dietary fat one I don't have much of a problem with. Yeah, I, mean, I could definitely see a high-fat diet causing some issues. The other ones, though, I'm just bopping back and forth. Um, the generic pharmaceutical one, yeah, the word, Rebecca's right. The words frequently and significant are problematic. I mean, the active ingredient has got to be dead on. But the other stuff could be anything, any type of filler. So that could contribute to the chemical differences. Um, so it depends on what you mean. But I also have a big problem with the, with the, the large multicellular creatures. First of all, it was my understanding that life appeared in the oceans first because before the ozone, you know, life really could exist above the water. Um, also, what about plants and other, and other animals? What the hell are you going to eat? The multicellular one, it's just, uh, I'm going to regret this, but I think, I just can't understand how that could be so. So um, I'm going to say that one is fiction. Okay, and Evan. Bob, I'm having the same issue you're having. I don't know if it's this pharmaceutical ones or the multicellular creature ones. I, I think the dietary fat one is plausible. Uh, certainly withdrawal symptoms of anxiety and food craving. I don't think there's anything special there. Large multicellular creatures may have appeared on land prior to evolving in the seas. How could that have possibly been? We've heard so much about the soup and the water, and it all came out of the water and crawled up onto the uh, evolved and eventually made its way onto the land. But that this is very different. Um, the pharmaceutical ones, Steve, frequently have significant chemical differences. Well, if that were the case, wouldn't a lot of people be having a lot of problems with the generic medicines that they've been taking. Wouldn't we be hearing a lot more about either side effects or good point? A lot of problems <laughs> that people would be having. I think that would have been more prominent in the media. I'm going to have to make a choice and say the pharmaceutical ones is going to be the fiction. I don't like leaving you alone out there, Bob, but. I made my choice. Okay. It's all right. Okay. So you all agree that a new study finds that reducing dietary fat from a high-fat diet can cause withdrawal symptoms of anxiety and food cravings. You all think that one is science. I wish I could tell you that this one is the fiction, but it is science. I know you would. Aha. But no, yeah, this one is this one's uh, this this science. This one's this was humans the easy or one. This was a study in mice. It's ah. not not in humans, and they fed mice a high-fat and a low-fat diet. And then the, the mice on the high-fat diet did gain some weight, but they didn't become obese. So even before they were obese, um, they then reduced the amount of fat in their diet, and they exhibited signs of anxiety and withdrawal. And they also looked at their brains 
uh, specifically at dopamine in the reward center, and you know discovered that the high, the fat has sort of the same effect on their brain as an addictive substance. You know they, in a way, were addicted to the high levels of fat in their diet and had withdrawal symptoms when when it was lowered. This is not the only study to show similar things. You know, hard to say how this translates to human behavior, but mice are used for a reason for this kind of studies. It's thought generally to be a reasonable animal model for this sort of thing, but you just never know until you do it in a human trial. Maybe that people who are trying to shift from a very high fat diet to a more healthful diet you know, may need to do it gradually or may need just to anticipate these kind of symptoms. And I ordered, I'd order Twinkies, I admit it. It may take time. It may take a couple of months before your brain adjusts and you, you know, can be more comfortable with your um, more healthful diet. I ordered them on eBay. Well, really? Sure did, that you, did you get them yet? Wean yourself yeah, off you? them. Are they did, banana Twinkies? Yep. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, they're regular ones. Item number two, researchers examining generic pharmaceuticals find that they frequently have significant chemical differences from their brand name version. Bob, you think this one is science. The rest of you think this one is the fiction. And this one... Wait, Steve, wait, wait. I hope it's the fiction. This is one of those epic moments. Bob, it could go one way or the other. That's right. Good point. What's it going to be, Bob? (laughs) Bob's by himself. He's either going to be the hero this week or out by his lonesome. (laughs) I bet you five bucks, Jay. Mm. All right. Really? It's got interesting. Five dollars. Five bucks, Bob. All right. And this one is the fiction. Sorry, Bob. Uh. Yes. (laughs) This one, yeah, you know, the the frequent and significant chemical differences was pretty extreme. I I could see, Bob, how you might think that, yeah, it's it's not with the active ingredient, but I actually didn't think of that when I wrote the sentence. But um, this was inspired by an actual news item in which reviewers found that generic brands of medications often don't have the proper labeling. The, the pack, the insert, the, you know, the, we, you get that long thing that describes to you all the ways, all the side effects and everything, that it's often out of date or inaccurate. They even found one example of uh, a, a generic version of a drug that was marketed with the wrong package insert information, like for the mm-hmm. wrong drug. That's not um, good. But that was just that was one isolated incident. But they did find frequent errors in the uh, the labeling information on the generic drugs. <laughs> but the drugs themselves, they do have to demonstrate uh, bioequivalency. It's the same active ingredient. They have to demonstrate that it has the same effects. There are differences, though, in the quality of manufacturing, and in, in there may be differences in the bioavailability. So the the dose may not exactly translate. This does make a difference for some medications. Uh, there are some times when, you know, physicians will write brand name medically necessary when, uh, the, the, whatever condition we're treating would be very intolerant of small differences in the blood level that can, re- that can result if you're bouncing around different generic brands. Um, in some of the anti-seizure medications, so for my own specialty, this makes a difference. You know, we don't want patients blood levels to to vary at all because, you know, we were, we have them right where we want them in terms of their seizure control. But generally speaking, generics are fine and they are bioequivalent to the brand name. Which means a new fossil analysis suggests that large multicellular creatures may have appeared on land prior to evolving in the sea. And that one, of course, is science. And 
Of course, Bob, that was surprising to me. This is only a hypothesis. Uh, I take it's it. a hypothesis. It's See, I didn't uh, use the word theory. Huh? Yeah, good job. Everyone. It's uh, a reanalysis of existing fossils, the Dickinsonia fossils in South Australia. These are beautiful fossils. Um, they are uh, formed probably by lichen or other microbial consortia. They're, they're fairly large, multicellular creatures. Consortia? Yeah, they, they were thought that maybe they were mar- the ancestors of marine invertebrates, but that's probably not the case. What the new analysis was, of was more of the strata in which the fossils occur, showing that it is, it is more similar to dry land than sea mud. So, so, which would mean that these fossils were on land, you know, and these, these date back to 542 to 500 to 635 million years ago. So these are Ediacaran era fossils, Ediacaran fossils. Mm-hmm. That, so they predate the Cambrian explosion. So these were the first, the, or the oldest large multicellular fossils. So if they were on land, that would mean that they occurred first on land. Um, so, Lots of caveats in there. It's why I say it suggests that this is the case. It clearly is not a firm conclusion. Then there are scientists who dispute these findings, who say that the evidence that these were sea creatures, the other lines of evidence imply that these were sea creatures, and they just basically don't believe this one paper saying that the uh, their analysis suggests that it was dry land. I don't believe it either. Just so, because you lost, it is not a valid reason oh. for questioning scientific research. Yes, it is. So it's it's interesting. You know, it's, it'd be interesting if these Ediacaran creatures did evolve on dry land rather than in the ocean, because we, we're so, as you say, Bob. You know, we're we're so um, familiar with the with this image, this notion of primitive life in the ocean, you know, in the sea, and then only later crawling out onto the dry land. I mean, that, that story is deeply embedded. This is too preliminary uh, to to hang your hat on yet, but interesting. We have to keep an eye on this, see where the scientific debate goes. Well, Jay, do you have a quote for us this week? I do. Uh, this quote is from a minor skeptical celebrity, and here's the quote. Damn! Huh. Bob Novella, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> minor, I'd say medium. <laughs> and also, shouldn't it have been a little more whiny? Damn! <laughs> Damn! Whiny. Could have said I'm crap. I'm not whiny. <laughs> crap. Oh crap! All right, now for the now for the real quote oh. from a real scientist. This is a quote sent in by a listener named John Davis. John is from Yorkshire in the UK. Yorkshire. The quote is: "Progress is impossible without change, and those who cannot change their minds cannot change anything." That was George Bernard Shaw. Mm. Oh, cool. Or better known as George Bernard Shaw. That is how he's best known, actually. All right. Well, thanks, Jay. And thanks, everyone, for joining me this week. Thank you, yeah, Steve. Whatever. Thank you, Doctor. Thanks, Steve. Good to have you home, Rebecca. Yeah, Good to be welcome home. home. Stick I'm going to go to bed. <laughs> Until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. 
For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at www.theskepticsguide.org. You can also check out our other podcasts, the SGU 5x5, as well as find links to our blogs and the SGU forums. For questions, suggestions and other feedback, please use the Contact Us form on the website or send an email to info at theskepticsguide.org. If you enjoyed this episode, then please help us spread the word by leaving us a review on iTunes, Zoom or your portal of choice.